You're listening to Home for Christmas, a teaching series from Formation Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. In this series, Pastor Ryan Hughley discusses four ways the season of Advent invites our hearts home. For more information about Formation Church, visit our website at formationslc.com. Amen. Well, I want to start this morning talking about why I think the holidays are so hard for so many people. I feel like there was a day and an age when the only thing that you heard from media, the only thing we heard during the holidays in culture was about how, what a happy time it was, and there was always this disconnect because you, we were only hearing that message and everybody was like, but I'm miserable during this time of year. And now we're starting to get so much more research that's coming out about how many people really struggle and suffer uniquely during the holidays. And so the question is, why is that? Why are the holidays so hard for so many? Somewhere inside of us, we have this expectation that they should primarily be festive and fun. But oftentimes, they are overwhelming at best and crushing at worst. And so the question is, why are the holidays so hard? Well, beyond, I believe, being overextended during this season, which I do believe has a lot to do with it, so many of us are just so overextended from like Thanksgiving through the end of the year. But beyond that, here's my theory. The holidays are hardest when we believe the fantasy that we are fed should in fact be real. I think that's what makes it so hard. It comes down to when we believe the fantasy that we hear all of the time should actually be our reality. So think about the fantasy with me for a second of modern Christmas. It's filled with all of these stories and images of relationships being just magically healed by lights and trees. We hear all of these stories of people experiencing, who've always been one way, experiencing an overnight transformation and being entirely different people. The modern fantasy promises us the perfect gifts, and it promises that we are going to spend time with flawless families. And then, so we have that, that we're just hearing that all of the time, and these fantasies are so constant and so compelling that we actually start to think that should be our reality. And so then when reality does hit, when it turns out our relationships are still broken, when people don't change, when we don't give or we don't get the perfect gift, when all of our families are far from flawless, amen? We just got done with Thanksgiving, okay? We all know none of our families are, even the ones we've built on our own, or we're just like, Phew, I don't know how we do this. So then we have this kind of collision that takes place between what we are told, well, this should be, this should be what the holidays are about, and then boom, we get hit by reality, and then all of a sudden, all of the pain is magnified inside of us, and as a result, the holidays are just super, super hard on many of us. But here's the good news. We do not have to believe the holiday fantasy that we are fed. We don't have to just believe that. And so rather than allow these fictional images of Christmas to inform our expectations, we can return to the Christmas themes of Advent. 
Now, the word advent comes from this Latin word that means arrivals. And as followers of Jesus, living in the time that we do, we live in this time stuck between two arrivals. Jesus has already come in the flesh, and he will come again, and we wait for that time to come. So we live in between these two arrivals. And so the holiday fantasy, the reason that it breaks down for us is that it does not have space for our actual experiences. The fantasy doesn't have room for our disappointment, for our discouragement, for our depression and our doubts. The holiday fantasies don't have room for our grief, our stress, and our worries, but Advent does. The Advent is very much the Christmas celebration of the birth of Jesus. I'm not not arguing for like this Debbie Downer sad sack Christmas, because Advent is very much the celebration of Jesus come, Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh. It is the celebration of that, but it's also... This time where we have the space for the reality that Jesus' life, even his death and resurrection, they were only the inauguration, not the consummation of everything that Jesus is going to do to put this world and to put us back into order. And so in addition to celebration, Advent is also filled with this desperate anticipation that one day Jesus is going to put right everything that's gone wrong in this world and everything that has gone wrong in each of us. And so in this, Advent invites our hearts home to the realities of hope, peace, joy, and love. And so I want to start this new series that we kick off this morning, Home for Christmas, with a message that I am calling Hope, the invitation to shift your gaze. The invitation to shift your gaze. And I want to start by addressing what I think is a very, very common and understandable misconception that we have about what we call hope. Now, as Christians, we are prone to conflate hope with optimism. And those two things are adjacent to one another, but they are not synonymous biblically. The optimism is the belief that your circumstances will get better. So the next relationship will be better than the last. The next job will be better than the last. The next year will be better than the last. The next church will be better than the last. The cancer will go away. The marriage will get better. The depression will lift and the anxiety will dissipate. Now the challenge is when our circumstances don't in fact get better, because sometimes they don't, then we believe our hope has died. And that's why we have to think so clearly about this, because when the Bible speaks of hope, it virtually never conflates it with optimism. I know we have many in our community that love the Bible Project and everything that they put out, and so I was watching this series of videos that they did recently on Advent, and I saw one this week that was specifically talking about this Advent theme of hope that we're going to talk about this morning. And and what we learn is that the Old Testament tends to use two Hebrew words that we translate into English as the singular word hope. The first is this word yakal, which just simply means to wait for. And then the second one is the word kavah, which speaks of this tension and expectation of waiting for something to happen. And so, for instance, one of the places that we see this so clearly is in Psalm 39, verse 7. The psalmist says this, Now, Lord, what do I wait, that's the word kavah, what do I kavah for? 
my hope, yakal, is in you. So that simple verse paints the clearest image of biblical hope, and it illustrates where it differs for us from optimism. See, where optimism is primarily circumstantial, hope is relational, which is a significant difference because it means that hope isn't about, primarily, about our difficult circumstances getting better. It's primarily about the nature of the God who is with us in the midst of them. And so hope is this deep felt belief that Jesus is exactly who he says he is and that he will always be as he has always been. And that's why the psalmist and so many other biblical writers could say, my hope is in you. And so the question is, in a day and an age, when many of us understandably feel like there is so much in this world that feels as though it is without hope, how can we stand in opposition to that and be a people of hope? Now, again, optimism, please don't hear me saying optimism is bad. Optimism is a powerful and important mental, emotional tool that we need. It's not bad, but it is limited. Because, again, when circumstances don't get better, optimism can fail us. It's limited in that sense. But hope is limitless because the character and nature of Jesus has never and will never change. So how can we be a people of hope? And so in a sentence, here's what I believe the scriptures teach us about hope. So if you'd like to make a note of things, write this down. Hope is what happens when we shift our gaze to the unchanging person of Jesus. Hope is what happens when we shift our gaze off of our circumstances and we set them on the unchanging person of Jesus. And so Advent invites us to shift our gaze off of the demand that our circumstances match up to the modern Christmas fantasy, because it doesn't. To shift them off of that and to shift our gaze onto the unchanging person of Jesus, who is with us in the midst of all of it. And so to show us this this morning, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles or mobile apps, anything you like to read the Bible on, go to Isaiah chapter 9. And if you don't have a Bible, the majority of the text is going to be on the screen this morning. We're going to be in Isaiah 9. We're going to look at the first seven verses. And while you're finding the book of Isaiah, it's a big fat book right in the middle of your Bible, uh, let me give you a little bit of context and set this up for us a little bit. So this prophetic word that we're going to read this morning, it was not ultimately fulfilled. It was written hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, and it was not ultimately fulfilled until he was born. And it specifically came during a season when the people of God were feeling as though they were entirely without hope. So the the kingdom of Israel was divided into two kingdoms at this time. There was the northern kingdom of Israel and there was the southern kingdom of Judah. And that southern kingdom of Judah was ruled by a king named Ahaz. And it was a really scary time to be king. Because Assyria was the political and military power of the day and they were a threat a threat to absolutely everyone. And as a result of that threat, the northern kingdom of Israel came to Ahaz in Judah and said, hey, we need to like team up together and we'll get together with Assyria and we're going to go attack Assyria to make sure that they don't wipe us all out. But Ahaz refused. And as a result of that, that northern kingdom of Israel turned on him and they decided that they were going to attack Judah instead. 
And even though God offered through Isaiah this word of comfort to Ahaz, telling him, it's going to be okay, I'm going to take care of you, as they come to attack you, Ahaz refused to trust God in the midst of it. And instead, he went to the temple, he gathered up a bunch of gold from God's temple, he went to Assyria and paid them to attack the northern kingdom. And so rather than trust what God had said, he came up with his own strategy to protect himself and his people. And it sounds really good. Like, I hear that, and I'm like, well, that's pretty shrewd. The problem is, the moment that Assyria was done with the northern kingdom, they attacked the southern kingdom. And the very people that Ahaz had paid to protect them now conquered them. And so just imagine the season of gloom that they find themselves in. In fact, at the end of Isaiah chapter 8, this is what 22 says. This isn't on the screen. Just listen to this. It says, They will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction, and they will be driven into thick darkness. And then it's weird because it says hashtag 2020. <laughs> I don't, that's like, a, maybe that's a footnote that someone added, but that just sounds like the perfect description of what the last couple years have felt like to so many of us. So that's their, like, all they see is distress. All they see is gloom. Everything is awful. And then it's into the midst of this that God speaks these hope-filled words. Listen to chapter 9, verse 1. Isaiah speaks for God, saying, Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations, which, spoiler alert, is where Jesus came from. So just imagine the good news that this would have been to them in light of all of the circumstances that they were facing. They're suffering physically under the oppressive rule of the Assyrians. They're suffering spiritually because they have rejected God and put their faith in false gods. And so in short, they are a hot mess. Things are not going well for Judah at this time. There is no reason for them to have even a shred of optimism. And then comes this fresh wind through this fresh word of hope. And God begins to cast a vision for a future different than what they're currently experiencing, telling them that a day is going to come when the gloom and the distress and the darkness, it will in fact end. But what becomes very obvious very quickly in these verses is that this hope that Isaiah is speaking about isn't ultimately rooted in their change of circumstances. It isn't ultimately about the gloom and the distress lifting for them. It's ultimately rooted in a person. And so let me just read these, uh, this next set of verses over us at once because Isaiah goes on. He says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every tramping, trampling boot of war of battle, I'm sorry, and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now listen to, this is where we're going to focus our attention. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast 
and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. So there's a lot happening there, but here's what I want you to notice right out of the chute. Notice how Isaiah writes in the, in the, he writes about these present events in the past tense, okay? I'm sorry, he writes about future events in the past tense, which is, requires a pretty high level of confidence because there is nothing in their present experience that matches what he's saying. But he's speaking about it like, well, this, is, this has already happened. There is no sign pointing toward any of this becoming a reality for them, yet he is so confident in God's promise that he writes as if it's already happened. And he starts by promising that light is coming into their spiritual darkness. And in the scriptures, light is almost always used as a metaphor for God's presence, which is what we read in John chapter 1, verse 5. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. That's one reason why, as Christians, for thousands of years, we've been lighting candles, even though I forgot to light these candles this morning. God is still here, despite not having the candles lit. Now notice, he promises light is going to come, and then the result of it is going to be joy. So where there had once been darkness, where there had once been distress, where there had once been gloom, God was going to give birth to joy. A subject that we'll talk more about in just a couple of weeks. But notice, he doesn't promise exclusively a change in circumstances. The focus is on the one who would bring the change. And so the focus is relational, not just circumstantial. And so this was, and this is for us today, an invitation to shift our gaze. To shift our gaze off of what is and onto the one who is in it with us. And please understand, I'm not arguing for shifting our gaze onto Jesus and in such a way that we deny the reality of what we're experiencing. So it's, it's, not like, it's not like, no, every, I'm just going to ignore the fact that like my house is on fire. I'm just going to look at my neighbors. That solves nothing. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about embracing the fullness of reality. Because what happens for so many of us is when our circumstances are trying, we get tunnel vision. And the trouble is all we see. And the problem is the trouble's not the whole story. So it's not an invitation to deny the difficulty of reality. This world is fundamentally broken. Our lives are objectively difficult. I mean, we are privileged in a lot of ways, but every human who has ever lived has had their fair share of difficulty. Christians look like crazy people when we deny that and just go, God's good all the time. Yeah, he is, and life still sucks so much of the time. Both of those things can be true. Being an adult means being able to hold two things in tension. And so we don't deny reality. We are embracing the fullness of it. And so what I want to do with the remainder of our time is I just want to ask you four questions. Here's the first one. Number one, will you shift your gaze to his wisdom? Will you shift your gaze to his wisdom? Because notice Isaiah describes the coming Messiah with four names. The first is Wonderful Counselor. One of my favorite authors, and uh, he's deceased now, but, and also translators of the original languages is Eugene Peterson. And in his translation of this verse, he changes the word wonderful, and he translates it as the word amazing, meaning Jesus is like super good at giving counsel. 
and he is this infinite well of wisdom for us. And so one of the most frequently prayed promises of Scripture in my life is in James chapter 1, verse 5. If I've ever sat with you in a time when you're trying to discern some decision that you're trying to make, you have most likely heard me pray this verse over you. But in James chapter 1, verse 5, we read this. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives, listen to this part, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. Now, if you've ever prayed that promise in faith, my hope is that you have seen that to be true because there is no promise I have seen prove true in my own life more frequently than this. It's very, very simple. Ask God for wisdom with faith and he will provide it to you, which is very good news because I don't know if you've noticed this, but the world feels like it's increasingly complicated. Agreed? Just very complicated time to be alive. Relationships, complicated. Work and vocation, complicated. Culture, complicated. Politics, stupid. (laughs) But complicated. Marriage, easy. I'm just kidding. It's real complicated. (laughs) Parenting, super, all of it. On an almost daily basis, we come up against these situations that if we're honest, like we don't know what to do with. We don't know how to respond to so many of what, so much of what we experience. And so when that happens, this part is simple. We essentially have two choices. We can give ourselves to overwhelming stress, which is what happens due to the amount of complications that there are in our lives, or, or we can offer faith-filled prayers for wisdom. See, in every situation that we face in life, we can learn to ask this question. To what is God inviting me to in this? Just for a second, let the Rolodex of your mind run. Think about some of the situations going on in your life. Relational, financial, work, whatever they might be. And what would it look like to bring that question into each of those situations? To what is God inviting me in this? Because here's one of the consistent answers to that question. It's the answer, prayer. God's always inviting us to talk to him more. And so confusion and uncertainty are an invitation to ask God for wisdom. And that wisdom might come through scripture. It might come through some sort of internal sense of the spirit guiding you into the wisest reaction or Uh, response in a situation. It might come through the counsel of a friend, but regardless of the conduit, the source is the same. Jesus is our wonderful counselor. So the question is, will we shift our gaze to his wisdom? Second question, will you shift your gaze to his strength? Will you shift your gaze to his strength? The second name that Isaiah uses to describe Messiah is mighty God. Now, later on in Isaiah, in chapter 40, specifically verses 28 and 29, listen to what Isaiah says about God's strength. He says, do you not know? Have you not heard? Now, those two questions. It's very important that that we read scripture with the right tone. And so don't hear those in like a condescending, like, have you not heard? It's not that, okay? It's It's like someone who's so excited to tell you good news that you don't know. Like, have you heard 
Taylor Swift's Midnights. It is a master. It's like that kind of thing, which is also true, by the way. It's that kind of tone that we read this with. So he says, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. Listen to this part. This is mind-blowing to really conceive of. He never becomes faint or weary. Never. There's never been a moment in time when God was like, I got to sit down for a second. And he goes on and he says, he gives strength to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Think about how significant that is. He never runs out of strength and he constantly longs to distribute that to weary people like you and I. It comes from this endless well of who he is. So think about it like this. I don't know if you'll share this in common with me, but as a kid, I loved almost any buffet. I didn't have a really refined palate. I was just, so when we were, Tyler and I grew up, um, we had the Royal Fork. Remember the Royal Fork? I remember the Royal Fork. But then our town got fancy and we got the Golden Corral, okay? No, 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 listen, like now it's bowel destroying. Then it was life changing, all right? So <clears throat> I remember, some of you know, I played football in college and I remember coming home from a game and uh, our team bus pulled up in front of a Golden Corral for dinner after a game. And I still remember, like, just think about the sheer terror of the people who worked in that Golden Corral as a hundred college football players came off a bus going, feed us now. Now, here's what, to their credit, here's what I'll tell you. We put to test the all-you-can-eat slogan, and no matter how many times we went to any station, it was filled with food. And all joking aside, that's what God's strength is like. It's endless. And he is generous with it. We have got to shake this view of God being stingy toward us. Like, "Mm, how bad do you want it? Like he's withholding from us. When he's just like, here's wisdom, here's strength. The problem is on us. The problem is not on him. He is not a withholding God. He is generous with these things. And what we have to pay attention to is that this promise of strength being generously given to us, it is conditional. That's the part where we trip up. It is a conditional promise. Because in verse 31, Isaiah says, those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. Now, other translations will say those who wait instead of trust those who wait on the Lord, which I believe is a more helpful translation, not because trust is wrong, but because it's too easy to pay lip service to the fact that we trust God. It's too easy to go, oh, I trust him. Oh, do you? See, waiting puts flesh on trust. Because if you trust him for it, then you'll wait to receive it. And that waiting can take so many forms, but for me, Sitting with God in the morning has been a sustaining lifeline. That has been my most regular expression of waiting on God. And I cannot tell you, specifically over the last three or four years, how many times I've sat with God in the morning and said, I just don't know how I'm going to get through this day. And somehow, I mean, I'm still here. So somehow, in some way, in response to that waiting, God's always given me the strength I need to get through that day. 
And so don't, don't hear, like, I'm tired of this language, like, we're lions. Like, if we wait on God, we will, no, I mean, we still limp through the day. But we get through it. He doesn't promise to make us gods. He promises the strength, strength that we need for everything he calls us to. But it comes on the condition of trusting him enough that we would learn to wait. And in response to that trust, he gives us strength. Because Jesus is our mighty God. So will you shift your gaze to his strength? Thirdly, will you shift your gaze to his care? Will you shift your gaze to his care? Notice Isaiah says the Messiah will be our eternal father. Your translation might say everlasting father. Now in scripture, fathers are held up as a source of nurture, protection, provision, and care. And we really struggle with the father language in scripture, many of us. Because the challenge comes down to many of us struggle to square scripture's picture of fatherhood with our own experience of it. Because we have not had great relationships with our earthly fathers, we struggle to understand and be able to even conceive of how Jesus could be called the everlasting father. And I once heard a pastor by the name of Louis Giglio years and years and years ago he said something about this challenge when I was in a season of wrestling through a bunch of my own biological father's failures in my life, and they were legion. And, and, and I heard Louis say this. I've never forgotten this sentence. He said, God is not the picture of your earthly father, which is really important for us to get into our heads and hearts because that's what we do. We go, okay, well, this is what my dad was like, and God is father, so this is what he's like. That is one of the gravest mistakes a human can make. And so into that, Louis says, hey, hey, God is not the picture of your earthly father. He is the perfection of your earthly father. And so here's what that means. That means that I can look at my kids who are currently talking in the back row, <laughs> and I can say to them, you guys want to know what Jesus is like? Jesus is like if I was a perfect dad to you. If, if I was always patient with you. If I was always kind to you. If I was never arrogant. If I was never rude to you. If I was never self-seeking in our relationship. If I was never irritable if I never kept a single record of wrong, that is what Jesus is like. And you know how I feel so comfortable saying that? Because in 1 John chapter 4, John says God is love, and that is how the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 defines and describes what love is like. The problem is, too often, we project our own distortions onto God. And when you doubt God's character, you will distance yourself from his care. If you doubt that he is good, if you doubt that he is kind, if you doubt that he is safe, if you doubt that he feels compassion toward you, that he is generous toward you, then you will inevitably draw back. And as a result of that, which like in, in all of that, that breakdown that we have, it's understandable. Please, there's no shame in feeling those things. It's understandable. But just because it's understandable does not mean it's not problematic. We got to work through that. It's unfair of us, and it hurts us to level these distortions at God that are not, in fact, accurate of who he is. And so 
if you are struggling to believe that God is a good father, that Jesus is a good eternal father to you, then please bury your heart in 1 Corinthians 13. Because that is what Jesus is like. I don't know what you've been told. I don't know what lies you have believed as a result of your own experience or what some spiritual leader might have told you at some point, but this is what Jesus is always like. He is our eternal father. So, will you shift your gaze to his care? And then finally, will you shift your gaze to his presence? Will you shift your gaze to his presence? Isaiah says the Messiah is the prince of peace. Now, we're going to talk about peace next week because, once again, what comes into our minds when we hear the word peace and what's on Jesus' mind are oftentimes very, very different things. But for now, the critical connection that we need to make is that peace in Scripture is always attached to God's presence. And this is why God says in Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Peace is the fruit of God's presence. I mean, just, just think about it. Few things produce more peace in us than the presence of someone more experienced, more capable, or more strong than we are. I met with uh, a couple this week that's asked me to officiate their wedding next year, and they are so, I mean, they just came out of the chute going, we are so anxious about this. They're extreme introverts, and so they're just terrified of having to stand in front of people and, like, trip up on their words and, like, are we going to be standing in the right? And they just came in, and they was just, like, they couldn't hold, I was just like, whoo, 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 we got to take a breath here for a second. There was so much anxiety in the room. And so then I just started to walk them through my own, like, I've done a bunch of weddings. I feel super comfortable being in front of people. I've done this before. I'm going to hold your hand. You don't have to remember anything. Just say what I say. And if you mix, like, mix up your words, it'll be totally like walking. And you could just see, as that reassurance came, you could feel the anxiety begin to dissipate. And the reason that that started to go away is because there are a few things that produce more peace than the presence of someone who is more experienced, more capable, or more strong than we are. And so here's the really good news. When you think about where your life is, where your life could go, there is nowhere you will ever be that God has not already been. And he will always be there with you. Nothing surprises God. When you have one of those, like, get that text message or that phone call or something happens in a day and you're like, man, when I woke up this morning, I did not think I was going to get that text or that call. I didn't think that was going to happen. God knew. Because nothing surprises him. Nothing confounds him. Nothing intimidates him. And so we are invited to cultivate a deeper awareness of his presence with us, which isn't easy. It takes intention and work, but he is with us. And what we're invited to is to cultivate an awareness of his constant presence with us because he is Jesus, our Prince of Peace. And so the question is, will we shift our gaze to his presence? And so again, hope is what happens when we shift our gaze to the unchanging person of Jesus. But here's the thing. I, I want to close with this thought because I think it's very, very important or everything that we just talked about falls apart. 
Here's what I think is true. Many of us want the hope that flows from gazing at Jesus with investing nothing more than a glance. And so think about for a second the difference between a gaze and a glance. I made the mistake, I understand this is a rookie mistake, I made the mistake of running to the mall on Black Friday. Yeah, 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 yeah. It it was like the Hunger Games, and the odds were not in my favor. Um, And as I walked through this sea of crazies, uh, I did a lot of like glancing at people. I was in a hurry, I was trying to like get my one thing done, get in and get out. And so I just did a lot of like glancing at people. What I didn't do is like stop and stare at anyone. For two reasons. One, I was in a hurry. Two, I'm not a sociopath. But, but, but my approach to my children is super different than that. Even though they're getting older, there are still times when I go into their room at night to check on them. They're, they're learning about this in real time, probably. <laughs> uh, so I go in to check on them, and, and I always take a few minutes to gaze at them. To really sit with and to take in their face. To allow my mind to replay all of these memories that we have built together over time. My heart opens to receive deeper and deeper love for them through this simple but intentional act of gazing at them. And that is the invitation of hope to set our gaze on the unchanging person of Jesus. And we do that as we ask for his wisdom, as we wait for his strength, as we draw near to his care, and we cultivate our awareness of his presence with us. And so if you want to be a person of hope, there's really just one question that remains. And that question is, Will you shift your gaze? Will you close your eyes and allow me to pray for you? Father, I thank you that you are accessible to us, that you are generous and kind, that you are not withholding or stingy. Lord, you desire to lavish us with wisdom, to lavish us with strength, to pour out care, to help us become more and more aware that you are always with us. When we feel most alone, you're still there. And so, Lord, we... Hear the invitation this morning to shift our gaze. But it's really, really hard because our circumstances are so loud and so acute that they hijack our attention so often and they become all that we see. The Holy Spirit who fills us and empowers us, would you widen the scope of our view this morning so that we can answer the invitation of Advent and come home to hope, come home to the embrace of the whole story that no matter what our circumstances 
have been, no matter what they are, no matter what they will be. Jesus, you do not change. You are our wonderful counselor. You are our mighty God. You are our prince of peace. You are all of these things that we have talked about, all of these things that we have sung this morning. And so we lift our eyes off of the exclusivity of our circumstances and we fix them on who you are this morning. Would you do all of that in us? Jesus, we thank you that you stepped into human history, that you took on flesh, that you added humanity to your divinity to stand in our place and make a way for us to be reconciled to healing relationship with you. That's what we celebrate this Advent season. Would you shift our gaze to who you are and would you make us a people of hope? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, um, if this is your first time with us, we close our 